Hi, welcome to Film Lovers. I'm Sonia Chung, and I'll be your host today. Uh, I've got the work experience boy with me, Tom Jolliffe again, and he's going to help me out today because I've got a bit of a croaky voice. Um, actually, no, it's me. I am the work experience boy. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, uh, guys. I've got a bit of a bug, so my voice is very croaky. <laughs> I'm it's all right, you sound good. a bad sore throat and a bad cough. It's not COVID, don't worry. So I'm on <laughs> antibiotics at the moment, but I'm really bored. So it's nice to talk to you both. So Tom and Nathan, uh, Tom's brought his mate along, Nathan. So you're going to both help, have to help me talk today <laughs> and take over a little bit. I'll be sort of moderating a bit more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right, Tom, why don't you start by introducing, we all know you, but why don't you start by giving um, introduction your friend Nathan and he can talk about himself yeah okay so I'm going to introduce the man the myth the legend Mr Nathan Shepka and he can tell us a bit about himself I like how you've uh you both said that uh, Tom's brought his mate along like I'm some sort of weird plus one at a wedding so uh my name's Nathan Shepka I am uh, a filmmaker from Scotland um typically I'll uh do a bit of acting in the films as well, produce, uh, direct, and uh, write some of them, but not this one. That honour was all Tom's. Um, and we should say that you both come on to talk about your latest low-budget film that's about to come out. So why don't you tell us a bit about that and a bit more about how you started out, Nathan? Okay, so uh, When Darkness Falls is uh, the latest feature film that we've just done. Uh, it came out in the States on the 21st uh, of June. And uh, basically it's a sort of old school mystery thriller, a bit of a throwback um, to some of the, the 70s movies. Um, it was actually inspired quite heavily by a 1970s British film called uh, And Soon the Darkness, which was uh, remade in, I think, 2010 with uh, She Who Shall Not Be Named, <laughs> Amber Heard. Uh, <laughs> but uh, basically, When Darkness Falls is about um, two American hikers who go hiking in Scotland uh, in the Scottish Highlands, and um, one of them goes missing. So it's a little bit of a flip on the, the original and soon the darkness which was uh two british girls who were cycling in the french countryside and one of them goes missing um ours is a little bit less tame a lot more twisty that is still quite slow burn in, in places but it kind of builds up to uh to quite a crescendo at the end uh with some good gore and some revelations and stuff like that um this is the second feature that i've done so i actually started out on um on shorts and i tended to do stuff like um take a Hollywood blockbuster concept and try and squeeze that into to 20 minutes. But as I kind of progressed, it became naturally longer and longer. And I thought, well, it's probably time to move on to a feature. Um, so the first feature was a film called Holiday Monday, uh, which is a sort of old school action thriller. Uh, and then this is an old school mystery thriller. Awesome. It kind of has a bit of um vibe of, um, I'm so sorry about my voice, guys, a bit of a vibe of, um, an American werewolf in London, in a way, isn't it? Because it's got that kind of the two hitchhikers, well, the two travellers from the States who go to this strange town in the middle of England <laughs> and then only get, you know, God knows what, attacked by a werewolf or whatever. Um, so 
was there a bit of a comparison to that when you sort of wrote that film? Yeah, I think there was a little bit of that. So I think um, I did think of um, Werewolf in London. I think a few reviewers have picked up on that as well. Mm. Um, there's no werewolves in it, I should say. Uh, <laughs> but we wanted to make use of like the Scottish Highlands. I mean, I've known Nathan for just over 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we kind of first met in sort of um, like fan forums online. We sort of ended up popping up on the same ones. And we're thinking, oh, there's that nutter again. <laughs> um, <laughs> and yeah, um, so you, he, he's based in Scotland and I've always loved the locations up there, but particularly like the highlands and all the country. So, you know, we wanted to make a film up there and utilise that. And it's absolutely stunning up in the Highlands, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the scenery is just, like, breathtaking. Yeah, yeah, although, ironically, we actually shot this uh, in probably what you would call the Scottish Lowlands. Um, okay. In a, in a film uh, in a village called One Look Head and uh, a neighbouring village called uh, Led Hills. Um, and actually, One Look Head is the highest village in Scotland. So even although it's not in the Highlands, it actually has never been the highest village in um, Scotland. And we thought that that would be a good double for the Highlands. And it's much, much closer. I mean, uh, that was, you know, a half hour drive versus, you know, a three hour drive up to the Highlands. Um, who's, whose idea was it to write the, the script? I mean, was it like a collaboration between you both or did someone have the initial idea and then the other person was interested in sort of side putting their input into it? Um, well, I'd, I'd mentioned to Tom that I'd seen uh, this film called In Soon the Darkness and mm-hmm. I said to him that, you know, something like that set in Scotland would be good, but it kind of snowballed from there because Tom's got, you know, the same taste in films really as me and the same sort of like, you know, the breadth of the films that he, that he enjoys watching and we both uh, are quite into these old-fashioned uh, Hitchcockian type thrillers, so I guess mm-hmm. it was a bit of a natural progression towards writing the script and deciding what the film is actually going to be about. And it's it's a shame, isn't it? Because these days there's very few films that really kind of build up to it. Um, those sort of slow burning, sort of Hitchcock type films where it's kind of like bits of like red herrings popped into it, and it ends up being something completely different in the end. Yeah, that's it. I think they're they're kind of slowly coming back into fashion sometimes on Netflix, although they're not always. Um, delivered in the best way um mm-hmm. but yeah we were kind of inspired by those old kind of films i've always really liked films where you know a character disappears early on and there's yeah. a bit of a mystery to it so you know things like breakdown uh the vanishing well, uh, there's this old film called la ventura i think me and nathan both watched it around a yeah. similar time this mm. old sort of classic where someone disappears yeah breakdown um, amazing i've seen it at least several times and i never get Oh yeah, yeah, breakdown's great. Yeah, so that was a key source of inspiration. But with that's kind of our thinking, really, to do something like that. Um, And yeah, we just we just wrote it from there, and then I kind of took over on the script after we kind of fleshed out the idea. Mm -hmm. How long? um, How many? I mean, not how long. How many drafts did it take you to get to the perfect one, Tom? Uh, Well, I always. I always bang out a perfect draft first time. So <laughs> no, it's about um, I'd say maybe two drafts, and then you know a few changes here and there. Um, it was because um, we'd sort of mapped it out pretty much as we wanted it, um, just in the kind of uh, brainstorming process. So we kind of knew where it needed to go. 
And um, yeah, it kind of, it was quite an easy one to do really in the end. Sure. And I think, yeah, but the, the final film as well is pretty much as scripted, bar a few just, you know, lines here and there. Mm. So this is probably the closest of all my films uh, to, you know, the final draft. Whereas yeah. usually it can be, you know, somewhere between 50% and 80% left is what, you know, I handed to the producers. Sure. Well, I guess yeah. because they need to make it work for it. everyone, don't they, who sees it in the end, the, the end result. So, yeah. Um, but I can yeah. imagine, would that cause squabbles, like squabbles between a writer and a director sometimes, do you think? Not in your case, but... No. <laughs> it can do sometimes, but I think, you know, as a writer, uh, doing like low budget films as well um, I kind of a lot of the ones that I've done so far have been creature features and sort of horror films and I like doing them because they're fun but they're also more or less a sort of job for me so once I've handed it off I don't want people to keep coming back to me and saying oh can you change this and do this Yeah, I'm yeah. happy for them to you know make changes that they like because you know generally um, scripts are always going to change between you know, the writer handing it off and the director making it. Mm. And then in post-production, they'll probably change again. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, me and Nathan were quite kind of in sync, so... That, that's really um, good, though, yeah. Yeah, and then he, you know, I sometimes have changes where the producers have had to change things just because of logistics, because someone didn't turn up or a location suddenly wasn't available or they ran out of money, you know, towards the back end. Um, but, you know, Nathan was kind of very well prepared and he knew, you know, what needed to be done. And there wasn't too many kind of things where we had to suddenly change. Um, Nathan, could you talk us through how long it took from the pre-production to the post-production? I mean, sorry, start again. How long was the pre-production period? And then how long was the per- the production period? And then how long was the post-production period afterwards? So. How long were they individually? And then how long did Um, it take to do the whole thing and put it all together, basically? So this one was probably a little bit shorter than than usual. Uh, I had the kind of added luxury, although I'm not too sure anyone called it luxury at the time, of being in lockdown. So uh, that extra time I could kind of dedicate to prepping when darkness falls because I wasn't really doing much else. And I think that we finished the script. I think Tom only started writing it probably in... The, either the March or the April 2020 uh, and then we were shooting by the September so I guess the, the pre-production period was probably one of the shortest ever and you're also you're having to prep for the entire shoot so we didn't we didn't have a day off we just shot back to back um, because we we're all staying on location uh, so we shot for 12 days in September uh, and all the cast and crew we basically just bubbled um and stayed on location for the 12 days in two separate cottages and then we did a night of reshoots uh in the november uh, and then i think the film was i think it was pretty much ready to go off to um potential distributors uh middle of 2021 obviously okay. these things are quite a quite a lengthy process because we're now middle of 2022 and it's just yeah. come out but um you know there's a lot of things to take into consideration like the length of time that it takes you to find a distributor and then delivering all the materials and even then when it goes through quality control platforms like amazon you have to have a kind of um three to four months lead time uh, in terms of notifying them of the release date. So, you know, if you've got the film ready in February, technically, you know, it's not up there until until the summertime. Yeah. 
Um, how do you go about looking for distribution after the film's finished? Or do you do that during the, the period of the filmmaking? Well, no, not right back at the start. So the first film we um, took to a sales agent who also represented this film, and they basically go away and find uh, find you a distributor, come back with some offers or come back with, you know, the, the distributors that are interested. Usually the States is first to be sold, and sometimes the, the distributor that it's sold to in the States will also handle international sales. So that almost gets taken off the sales agent's hands right away. I think probably due to the kind of building of knowledge and already having made some contacts with the first two features anything from here on in there's the potential for us probably just to to sell it ourselves and um use those contacts we've already got um, as opposed to going through a sales agent which is something it's probably a natural progression that a lot of filmmakers um make um is it harder to sell for an american well not for to an american audience than it is to say an english audience I think there's probably two things, you know, specifically on When Darkness Falls that affects that. Uh, American audiences are probably a little bit easier with this one because the two leads have American accents. Uh, this the sort of Scottish setting seems to be really appealing to people in the States, you know, given mm. the success of stuff like Outlander. Uh, but on the flip side of the card, actually the UK market in terms of, um, in terms of, success is actually pretty terrible at the moment and um, dvd over here has died much much quicker than in the states mm. and you've got every single supermarket has pulled dvd apart from um morrison's and asda and then you've got hmv but obviously there's less of them than before and the other thing that we don't really have over here is any um uk specific streaming platforms or even any platforms that have made their way across the pond i mean we've got amazon but in the states they've got you know chubby voodoo racketing uh the whole lot um and those things haven't really haven't really translated over here yet so the uk market is actually very difficult and Ironically, even although it's a, a British-made film, it's probably going to be more difficult to secure a release in the UK than in the States. Yeah, that's very strange, isn't it? And it's kind of a shame as well, because yeah. there's so many good low-budget films that come out of England. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. Um, how many people were working on the actual production itself? Like, So how many crew members and how many actors were involved during the making of it? So we tried to keep uh, the crew down to what I call a skeleton crew, partly because of costs and partly because, uh, well, because of COVID, but because it would also create a a kind of nice tighter group. And in terms of being on set um, every day when we woke up, you know, you could maximise the time and the efficiency with a a smaller cast and crew. So I think the cast there was, uh, let me get this right, seven people in. um, Yeah, and then the crew would have been probably another half a dozen uh, max. So we had um, DOP, sound, lighting, uh, makeup and camera assistant. So, yeah, five. Uh, and then we had a drone pilot down for a couple of days as well. So all in all, just over a, a dozen people. Uh, and there okay. wasn't too many more involved in post-production either because uh, I edited it, the DOP graded it. I think there was probably only another three people involved in the post-production. Um, so, yeah. Were they all um, locals? Um, so cast-wise, uh, no. Um, so Michaela, the lead, she was from Manchester. Uh, Emma, who plays Andrea, she was local. So was Craig, uh, the guy who plays Tommy, and myself. Um, and Tony, who plays the barman. 
Uh, Neve, who played Gwen, was local, but she's since moved down to London, and uh, so is Emma, I think, actually. And then uh, Ben, who played Beck, is from round about the Carlisle area, I want to say. Um, okay. So he, he wasn't too far away. Uh, all of the crew, though, are local, and um, all of the post-production crew are local, although we did have to do, because of the pandemic, we had to do some of the stuff remotely um, in terms of, you know, reviewing cuts and whatever else. And the ADR was particularly challenging because by the time that we got around to doing the ADR, which was uh, in, I think, December 2020, just after the reshoot, um, they were starting to lock down again. So we basically had to smuggle uh, Michaela up over the border <laughs> on a train and send her back down the next day. <laughs> did um, did you have to do tests throughout the production and before the production every day as well, like during the filming? Well, like basically... What we did was we all tested before we came to set, and then after that, because we're in a bubble, we just uh, we just kind of stayed as is. We weren't really in contact with any of the locals at all. I mean, it's very, very, very quiet down there. Perfect for this kind of film. You know, you could yeah. you could walk through the town or village and not see another soul. So the only people we actually really came into contact with outside of the production group when we were down there was the uh, the owners of the pub location, um, and uh, the rest of the time it was just us. And we tended to do, you know, if someone was needed for four days, they would shoot for four days, wrap, and then go home again. Um, so we weren't having too many people kind of coming back and forth to set. Okay. Tommy, you've been very quiet. Why don't you ask a question or say something? <laughs> well, well, I was Take quiet over. during production. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was just sat at home enjoying myself, uh, probably writing creature features. Um, um, yeah, I do don't tend to, to get on set. The, do you need to actually be on the set, sorry, well, um, as well, or is that not mm. important for the writer? Not, not really. I think what happens is... Um, you know, on bigger pr production, you know, films like Hollywood films, then, you know, writers might be on set. Um, but, you know, I think even after COVID now, it's going to be less of a case that you'll need, you know, the original script writer on set. Um, you know, they'll have a script supervisor to make sure everything's being done properly. But um, in terms of like last minute changes, it'll you usually be like a first AD working with the director who might do a few changes here and there if something comes up. Um, or, you know, if I've ever had to do that, um, I've done it remotely. So, yeah, I'd like to visit set, though. I think because of the timing with COVID and everything, I I basically, I just stayed away. But I think, you know, the next time that, um, you know, me and Nathan do a film, I'm probably going to try and get up if I can for at least a day or two. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you, knock over um, a few lights. yeah. Do you and uh, Nathan mind if the actors do a bit of improv or would you prefer they stick to the script 100%? So, like, as you're filming, would you might say, actually, this doesn't work. Can we change it to this, for instance? Is that how you guys work or do you prefer to sort of stick to the script more? I mean, I quite uh, like the... Oh, sorry, Tom, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I'll just say one quick thing. I think, from my point of view, I'm not too precious about my writing, so... Um, I don't mind it. And I think in one of my recent films, um, which has got quite a few well-known actors in it, um, one of them kind of does a monologue in the middle of this kind of scene that wasn't there originally. But, I mean, you know, he's such a good actor, um, uh, Nick Moran, this is, uh, that, um, you know, he really elevated that scene and made something more of it. And he makes me look good as a consequence. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't mind it. But then I'm not on set and I don't have to sort of have everything timed 
you know, no. to the minute, really. So, yeah, I'll just let Nathan say from his perspective. Sure, sure. Um, Nathan, um, I've got a question for you. Is it harder to shoot in the nighttime than it is to shoot in the daytime? Because you said the majority of the shoot of the the shoot was actually set at nighttime. So, is it harder or is it easier? Um, I guess each of them kind of brings their own set of uh, challenges and whatnot. I would say probably shooting at night, certainly in terms of comfort, is probably a little bit more difficult because it's because uh, it's naturally colder than during the day, and then you've got to compensate for you know um, getting up later. And then if you're if you're up the next day, we actually tended to do almost a back shift most days, so there was a couple of nine to fives, and then um, we're kind of getting up midday and um, shooting for part of the day and then shooting for part of the night a lot of the time nighttime I mean daytime's busier but not down in places like that so it's kind of much of a muchness where busyness is concerned in terms of you know people getting in the way mm. uh, but nighttime you've got the issue of you know lighting the set as well um, and we lit the set mostly via generator because obviously if you're out in the middle of nowhere uh, you don't have plug sockets and whatnot. So there was a few scenes like uh, in the forest and at the lead mine dump um, that we had to use a generator, and that's a pain for sound. Um, but where you can get away with actually getting access to electricity or um, you know using battery-powered LEDs, which the technology these days is fantastic, especially the output uh, that these things have and um, you know the battery life. It can be basically just the same as shooting during the day, but as long as you've got those provisions in place, um, I think. But I'm not a massive fan of night shoots. I'm I'm a bit of a fan of the the Clint Eastwood thing where he basically just shoots nine to five. He hates yeah. shooting long days, uh, and at Wait. weird times, and you know, time to go home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a wrap, guys. He's got quite an unusual way of filming, isn't he? When he directs, because he just says instead of says. Um, cut he'll just say that's enough <laughs> yeah i think he only does about five takes where someone like stanley kubrick probably did about god knows how many he did a ridiculous yeah, I mean, each director i suppose has got their, their own way of working i kind of don't get the stanley kubrick way though because i'm pretty sure i don't know who it was but he did something like 120 takes it was ridiculous wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah of someone literally walking into a room and it's like, how can they possibly have mucked that up? They cannot do that any different. But uh, I quite like the Clint Eastwood thing. I mean, I don't tend to do this uh, really, but he will almost secretly record the rehearsals and then he'll say cut and, you know, or whatever, that's nothing. Um, he just goes with that. And I think his idea is that the actors are more relaxed if they think it's just a rehearsal take and it's more natural. Whether or not that is the case, I'm not too sure, but you, you can't slate the performances in Clint Eastwood's film, so, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, that kind of makes sense because they're caught off guard. Mm. So so you would be more relaxed and, mm. um, you know, not so aware or conscious about, you know, actually we're filming at the moment. Do you know what I mean? You're, you're caught yeah. off guard. So um, it kind of makes sense that he, he does that. Um, yeah. Nathan, are you notorious for doing something like 120 takes? Uh, no, although <laughs> what, I, what I tend to do is I will do one for safety. I always say one for safety. Um, sure. so even if the first take goes really well, uh, you know, something can happen, you know, like something's in shot or, or whatever. I, I tend to like to go, right, that was really good. Let's just do another one for uh, for safety. Sure. Um, did you encounter any difficulties along the way of filming? Because it's 
like filming is generally a lot of problem solving, isn't it? As you go along. So maybe there's not enough light or the lights going down, you know, setting down that way or whatever. It's, it's an ongoing thing. So you're constantly working through, you know, problem solving as you go along. Was there any difficulties you encountered during the way? I mean, this was a fairly smooth shoot, to be honest with you. Uh, I think the fact that we kind of woke up on set every day, uh, the weather was pretty good, especially for kind of September time. Um, I can't really say that there was too much. Again, I had the luxury of preparing as much as possible, so everything kind of went in the van and each day was, uh, you know, meticulously planned. Um, but other than the, the reshoot, um, you know, I, I don't think that anything went particularly badly or there was anything no, massively no. challenging not even due to covid but then if we're you know if we were shooting for 12 days in glasgow city center covid would have been a massive problem but yeah. shooting out in the middle of nowhere it's you know it almost it was almost like it didn't exist for 12 days until we came back did you shoot everything so was it like a back-to-back as like you know as it did it go from like scene one scene two scene or is it more of the case that you have to do like most films where it depends on the actor's availability or the crew availability or the location available. So sometimes you might be doing the end scene to begin shooting with and then you'll finish the wrap with the beginning scene. Was it like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, that is what happens on most of my productions. And like you say, locations is the one major thing that affects mm. it because, you know, if you go out and say, right, we're shooting this on the first day, oh, okay, that location is not available at the weekend, right, okay, we'll need to switch it around. So, yeah, it was all shot out of sequence, but the fact that we shot it over the, the course of 12 days meant that continuity was, you know, able to be kept fairly firm. Uh, that becomes difficult, obviously, when you're shooting it over a longer period of time, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the uh, the film that I've just wrapped on, we literally shot the last scene first, so, you know, that happens quite a lot. Uh, but as long as you kind of plan out the schedule, then, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Tom, you need to say something. You've been very quiet over there. <laughs> well, I mean, from my perspective, from the, the films that I've produced, you know, when you're working in low budgets, you've kind of got to be, you've got to lay things out where it's going to be as simple as possible to film. I mean, that was our, in our thinking, you know, when we were developing the script that, you know, we wanted to have certain, you know, moments of where there's a big moment, you know, like someone where the blood comes out basically um and you have those key moments you know peppered throughout you know we slowly built up to a quite a uh, a rollicking finale i like to think i think you know the finale of the film really does go kind of all out um so you know you have to kind of really be careful of how you lay out your film yeah um so yeah we were we wanted minimum cast minimum locations and then, you know, the more kind of, um, you know, pragmatic you are, the less problems could potentially arise. Sure. I mean, from my low-budget horror films, they shoot in even shorter, you know, time periods than, you know, the 12 days that Nathan did. And I think, you know, for what he did, you know, that 12 days was beneficial. So um, some of the films I've I've written, they've ended up shooting in like six, seven days. And that's where, you know, if anything does go remotely kind of wrong, you've really got no time for error. Mm. Um, so there was one film where a makeup person didn't arrive on set in the morning. Oh, <laughs> the producer ended up having to kind of do some oh. makeshift work himself. <laughs> um, 
and you know you do find in these kind of movies you're going to end up multitasking mm. um and you know as nathan said he you know he he edits as well you know he can he acts in the film as well so he's kind of taking on um you know maybe three four roles that mean he doesn't have to cast another three people or crew another three people yeah um yeah so this makeup person didn't turn up and then what was going to be three elaborate death scenes ended up having this kind of mythical creature mysteriously finding a gun and just shooting three people at the same time which is <laughs> <laughs> literally because they were running out of time yeah they didn't have the makeup person to do this elab- these elaborate death scenes anyway so they just had to kind of um you know rush it out but that's you know, sometimes that happens, sometimes you're quite lucky. So, you know, fortunately for, you know, Nathan and the team, there weren't too many big problems. Um, Nathan, is there a lot of gore in the film? Um, well, we're, we're keen not to turn it into sort of a schlocky B-movie uh, horror type thing, but <laughs> I think given the sort of slow pace of uh, the film and Soon the Darkness that we're inspired by, I think we wanted to kind of give some audience payoff um, especially after you know um, sitting through quite a slow burn. So yeah, there's there's a few gory deaths. Anyone that dies in the film is it's pretty gory. I mean, essentially it becomes a little bit of a survival film towards the end. So you do get those payoffs, which hopefully uh, the audience appreciate after sitting through that kind of uh, that build up and the twists and turns. How much fun is it making all that blood and gore for those sort of films? Um, that goes to wife of you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let Nathan start on this one. Okay. Okay, um, so for this, sometimes I mean, uh, obviously, um, it depends who's dying in the scene, but sometimes those can be the most unpleasant things to film, especially in terms of getting wet and or dirty and having to stay like that for most of the day. But um, <laughs> we, uh, our makeup artist Nike, we tend to utilize a variety of different um blood effects so one of the things that we used for this uh, and we have used in other productions is i don't know if you've seen those sort of uh garden spray things that you fill with paint and they pressurize by kind of pumping them up and then you've got the the release nozzle which they're actually meant to be for spraying sheds and fences and stuff like that but yeah. um we fill one of those with uh water a load of red food coloring and then because what you tend to do uh with the the food coloring makes it really watery so it doesn't stick on anything or it comes out looking like blood but whatever surface it lands on it doesn't so we um mix that with some coffee granules which gives it that stickiness and that slightly darker tone and then the other stuff that we use we've got kind of the standard fake blood that you get in um you know the liter cartons or whatever um which you can't get in your mouth or your eyes and then you've got then the mouth blood for if someone gets punched in the face and has to split, spit blood uh or we didn't use it for this film but you also get in the eye blood as well um but nike the makeup artist actually made a lot of this so um michaela um who plays the lead of Jess, she gets pistol whipped about halfway through the film uh, and sports the injury, obviously, for the uh, for the remainder. So uh, a lot of the, the things like that were actually made up prior to coming on set. So they were made as moulds so that they can be applied every day. Um, so that's one of the things that we also do, especially if characters have got injuries for long periods of time. <laughs> Tom, you've actually probably got an interesting story about blood, I think. Yeah. <laughs> got an well, you know, in the sort of micro-budget film world, when you're producing yourself, as I've said before, you've got to kind of multitask. You kind of learn new roles. So I've done, you know, I've been an actor as well. I've composed. I've done production design, produced location scouting, 
sound recordist really badly um, <laughs> and also i've done you know the blood effects in a film really badly as well so why don't you so, tell us uh, about that yeah so <clears throat> i was in charge of making the blood effects i did like a little mixture of um something like this you like the standard blood you can buy in the shops like nathan's got um and i kind of mixed did a mix of that with a bit of food coloring a bit of ketchup might have used coffee as well um and then we had this scene where someone gets their neck sliced and then there's like this all this arterial spray that goes along a white wall and uh unfortunately we've all i think because of all the like the food coloring all the stuff that's in ketchup as well uh it just stained this white wall Oh Thankfully, it was my process. Oh, so God. We, we wasn't a sort of Airbnb or anything. Otherwise, I'd have been in trouble. <laughs> but <laughs> I stained my brother's wall. And, uh, you know, bleach, nothing would get it off. So eventually he had to repaint it. Oh, no. <laughs> so, yeah. If you're ever going to do makeup and blood, never hire me. <laughs> <laughs> I did it once for um, a low-budget horror film because the wardrobe person dropped out. And on um, low-budget films, like you said, the makeup artist dropped out. Um, it happens quite a lot on low-budget films. So so I basically said I'd help my friends out because they were the ones making the film. And um, I was in oh, my voice is going, Tom, help me. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, it is fun, isn't it? That's, it is you know, You're fun. concocting it like a witch's cauldron. Um, it's fun when you're making it. It's not fun for the people who have to put it on, though. I imagine. No, and how long do they have to last with that makeup on, Nathan? I mean, how long were your actors in all that blood and gore for? Like one day? Can it be that long? <laughs> uh, yeah, probably not that long. I mean, to be fair, if you tend to die towards the end of the scene, <laughs> uh, you're not lying there for too long kicked in makeup. But uh, I suppose it depends how unpleasant your death is. Uh, there was probably a couple in the film, which I won't spoil, that, uh, you know, I was glad that I wasn't doing myself. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very, a lot of the time that stuff is very sticky, isn't it? It tends to be, um, I mean, it varies on set to set, but a lot of the time it's like syrup, isn't it? So it's very sticky when it's on you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I remember me and my sister, because we were both helping out in the wardrobe department and the art production side, we were basically just throwing on loads of this stuff onto the clothes and stuff. And like, yeah, we'll throw a bit of that on, throw a bit of that on, that'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be fun. It was so much fun. Um, but I felt bad for the actors who had to wear <laughs> had to wear those clothes yeah we uh fortunately the sort of technology if you want to call it that's getting better because uh we actually had a uh because we're staying down on location um we had washing machines and stuff on set and uh we're able to kind of bung the clothes and those to to get out but because technology is getting better you can get stuff now that doesn't stain and even the, and the mouth blood uh now tastes like mint so it's almost just like you're brushing your teeth oh okay do you have to get several replicas of the clothes? Because we had to when we did the low-budget horror film. So I had to go out and I had a budget of so much money, I can't remember. And I had to go out and buy loads of clothes for the actors. But because it was not shot in sequence, so you'd need to have several of the same clothes, really. Um, so one day it might be the, you know, the death scene. So you'd have to put them in loads of blood and all that kind of stuff. And the next day it would be completely clean. So... 
was there a lot of that going on as well with the replicas of several clothes or did you just stay to one set of clothes uh, no, we did actually buy uh, at least a couple of sets for uh, for most people or anyone that had to get anything anything done to them. And as you say, because you are shooting out of sequence, it doesn't mean that you can use the same clothes and just make them progressively dirtier. Uh, not only that, I'm guessing people would probably smell quite bad after a 12-hour day of wearing the same clothes. So, uh, yeah, no, we had to, for the sake of continuity, just buy um, a couple of different a couple of different ones and um, keep switching those out. And um, Nathan and Tom, are you like a big fan of making cameos in any of the films that you make together? Uh, well, I haven't met, I haven't had a cameo in anything Nathan's done yet, but I have played a dead body in one of my own. Okay. Um, it's just one of those things. I think sometimes, you know, if you've got a small role, I don't generally like kind of, I've done a few things while I've acted, but I'm not a huge fan of doing it. So, you know, I do, I'll do it if I can save myself having to cast a role and I, if I know that I'm not going to ruin the film. <laughs> so I thought I could get away with playing a corpse. I've just about pulled it off. And um, what about you, Nathan? Well, I tend to, um, I tend to act in pretty much everything that I make anyway. Um, I think out of everything, there was only one short film that I had just a brief cameo in and everything else uh, everything else I kind of got a, one of the main parts in which I'm not too sure what that says about me but um, <laughs> yeah I mean I do enjoy acting as much as any other kind of part of the production so I say acting in inverted commas yeah. like I'm actually any, any good at it <laughs> uh, what um, about you Sonia what's your favourite because I know you, you act as well but do you like the other parts of the production as well that you've you've been involved in um, I like being um, involved in the um, the art production side because I like arty things and painting and stuff. So I really enjoyed that because I was kind of basically, even though I was the wardrobe person, so I was in charge of all the costumes. Um, I was also helping out the girl that was in charge of the art production. So there was one scene where we had to make a place look like it had been wrecked because they just had a party. So it was like loads of fun because you just yeah. went like, Beer cans everywhere. <laughs> trashing you could have just filmed place. at Nathan's place. Yeah, it was just really great fun. It was on the set. We we're just trashing everything together. <laughs> it was great therapy. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, that should, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry about my voice, guys. <laughs> um, Tom, take over. I need your help. Okay. Um, so what I was thinking is we could. Uh, we could discuss some inspirational kind of micro-budget films that, you know, have really kind of inspired us. Um, so I'll, I think I'll start. Look at my ego here. I'll start. Uh, so one of the, the films that really kind of inspired me in terms of, like, you know, very micro-budget um, was kind of like the Evil Dead films, um, Sam Raimi. They were really and successful, weren't they? Yeah, they were, yeah. They just became sort of huge. I mean, the first one, he'd done, I think he'd done a film beforehand, which was like a college film. And then he kind of, um, he went and he did Evil Dead 1. And I think what he did is just borrowed as much money as he could, put loads on credit cards, like a lot of um, filmmakers do. And, uh, you know, it's, it's weird because you think low, low budget, but I think the film still cost around about a hundred thousand dollars something like that 
purely because they they were shooting on film back then. Mm. So, you know, even a lot of these films that historically have been marked out as being very, very low budget, um, you know, there's still there's still a lot of money spent on them just because, you know, they were shooting on film, even just 16 millimetre film. And it was um, very effective as well, wasn't it? I mean, there's not yeah. much. It was all about the, the effects, really. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, they multitask, they, you know, do lots of different things. Um, and you have to be quite creative, you know. So a lot of those low-budget horror films, which, you know, was cost well under, you know, half a million, they would have to be very imaginative with all their makeup and effects sure. and just do, you know, very elaborate things to make a shot come off. Yeah. And it's, I guess, it's yeah. a lot of POV type stuff as well, really, isn't it? Point of yeah. Shots. Yeah. And then someone like Sam Raimi was always thinking of imaginative ways he could uh, move the camera. Yeah. So, he'd, you know, he'd, he'd spiral the camera and he'd do things like that. Um, and uh, just to make it stand out because... You know, you can't really hide the fact that you've spent a lot less than, you know, the big Hollywood film next door. So you have to kind of be as imaginative as you can and make the most of your your scenario. Yeah. Was um yeah. was Evil Dead successful when it first came out in the cinema? Uh it was more so on video because mm. that was right at the beginning of um VHS really. That was like okay. one of the first kind of most infamous video nasties so mm. it kind of got a reputation uh yeah but then by the time they did the second one and the third one it was just you know massive sure what about you nathan what are your favorite low budget films well see this is the thing i mean um you know it depends what your your kind of uh, view on low budget is because if you look at something like uh you know the $200 million movie starring The Rock versus, you know, a $10 million movie starring Steven Seagal. $10 million in that case is considered low budget, but, I mean, we're obviously talking about either hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands here. Um, Evil Dead is a classic, and uh, obviously it's kind of got that uh, that kind of cult following now and spawned sequels and TV shows and remakes, and then there's something else coming along soon as well, I think. Um, a couple of low-budget films that I um, had a look at recently, I'm not too sure how much they cost, but I would, I would guess probably sub a million, um, was... Uh, Bad Day for the Cut and Calibre, both of which I saw on uh, Netflix. And mm. uh, Bad Day for the Cut's this sort of, I think it's, I want to say it's Irish. I think it's an Irish, um, it's a revenge movie, but it's just very kind of uh, raw. And, uh, you know, we've got some some really great lines, some really great, great performances. And it's very raw and realistic. Uh, and it just feels really homegrown. Um, and I thought that was a good movie. And then Calibre is... Um, sort of a bit of a nightmare scenario. It's about these two um, Scottish guys. I don't know if they're on they're on some sort of hunting weekend um, and one of them is trying to shoot a deer and he accidentally kills this little girl in a forest and then the rest of the film is essentially about them trying to cover that up and make, make it out of this... Uh, make out of this village and back to where they're from without getting caught but uh, it's insanely tense and immediately you kind of um, place yourself in that scenario and think what on earth would I do <laughs> in this kind of impossible scenario and it's pretty grim like the, the ending's pretty grim and the kind of uh, the film itself is pretty grim but they actually shot uh, I think partly down in One Lock Head where we shot because I even recognised one of the streets um, from that film in our film um, when we were down there but yeah I kind of like stuff like that and that's um 
they're almost a little bit comparable to when Darkness Falls, both in terms of what they're trying to do with a little bit of a slow burn build up, and then also in terms of uh, you know, the rural setting. Mm. Um, do you have any other favourites between you both, or should I give you a few mine? A few mine. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. You can, let's hear one of yours. Yeah. Um. Well, I always remember Black Christmas. I don't know if you saw that film with Olivia Hussey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the seventies. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that was a really good film. Um, but that flopped really badly when it first came out in a cinema. Um, because it came out the same time as Halloween. And I think the reason why it wasn't successful when it first came out was because um, you never got to see the weirdo that lived upstairs in the attic <laughs> that was doing all the killing. And um, But actually, over the years, it kind of, it's a bit like Evil Dead, Tom. It gained like a cult following. Yeah. Um, because actually, you know, even though you never see him, you are actually him because you're seeing everything through his eyes. It's all POV shots. Um, and, you know, you don't really see that much blood and gore. I mean, it's, it's gory in parts, but you say, but then, um, it's a lot of it to do with um, how effective it is with the camera movements, etc. So it's a bit like Evil Dead in the way that you're talking about, Tom. Um, I don't know. I mean, have you guys seen that film? And what did you think of it? I, I've uh, not seen it. I've heard of it, but it? I haven't seen it yet. No. It's I keep meaning to. Yeah, yeah. yeah same. What about you, Nathan? Uh, yeah, no, I'm like Tom. I haven't seen it. I know uh, that, you know, it's got a bit of a cult following as well. Now, and the, the concept is quite good. You, you'd have thought, um, especially on release, that would have been a little bit more successful because it's got quite a, an interesting angle on it. And mm. I think it was probably one of the first um, horror movies set at Christmas. Um, but yeah, no, I, I'd probably like to check that out at some point. But it's so original I, as well because you think about Christmas is such a lovely time of year. Yeah. It's nice and happy. And they're like, no, no, let's put in a murderer that lives upstairs in the attic. He's going around <laughs> killing everyone in a sorority house. Um, yeah, but it just, I mean, there are films like that, aren't there, that do really badly upon release. Um, and then over many, many years, you know, on DVD or video, etc., they gain their following, um, basically. So um, there's one film that was a low-budget film, and I know we don't like it, The Blair Witch Project. The bloody <laughs> Blair Witch Project. <laughs> what do we think about that, Nathan? <laughs> See, to be honest, it's always one of those movies that... I've I got this weird thing where people hype... Like, there's certain movies that are hyped up so much that, uh, I, I, you know, I've watched a few of them and then you're kind of like, oh, is that it? I kind of don't get the hype for that. And uh, <laughs> these tend to be slightly older movies. And so I've actively avoided The Blair Witch for that reason. And also I absolutely hate those fi- uh, those found footage films. It's almost like they're, they're like, oh, uh, let's just do this as an excuse because we couldn't be bothered to shoot the film properly. <laughs> so, you know, anyone can grab a camera and wave it around. I just, I've never understood the appeal of those. You don't get anything else that you get with cinema, like the the nicely framed shots or whatever. Um, It's just not something that appeals to me. I mean, at the time it came out, it was hugely successful, wasn't it? Because it was a lot to do with the marketing. That's when the internet had just basically kicked off. And they used to... I think that's, yeah, that's one thing people don't always consider. I think they spent about 15,000 on the actual film itself. It wasn't much, was it? Yeah, but then on top of that, the marketing cost 
pushed it up to about around about a million, I think. So yeah. I mean, they did make they did make a ridiculous amount of money, but yeah, it's not quite as low budget as um, if you take into all the account into account all the sort of marketing costs. It's not quite as cheap as it's often billed as. Yeah, I mean they yeah. made back at least twice the amount of the revenue they needed to, so it was hugely successful for them. Um, and they found a great way of torturing people before the film even came out, didn't they? Because they made it sound like it was this like sort of found footage, or like, what's this? What's this? Like, oh, we have to go see this, and it's just um, these three film students walking around, getting lost, and a camera stuck up her nose, and she's really snotty, and she's going, I can't find my way. I'm lost. <laughs> um. But yeah, you watch it now, it's just a pile of crap. <laughs> Excuse me. But, yeah, um, I think it's just a good example of like an early example of viral marketing and just everyone suddenly hearing about it. I think that was like the big film of the year besides The Matrix. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, kudos to them. They got, you know, they got their money's worth and, you know, they were very clever about the way they went around it. Um, but like Nathan said, it kind of spawned this whole sort of found footage genre didn't it yeah. like how many other films came out of that sort of genre God, I, mean, yeah, were, I mean yeah there were loads but then what happened was it just as it was dying off paranormal activity came back was a oh, massive yeah. hit and then it just yeah. launched them all off again and it's like oh my god because <laughs> uh, i'm not <laughs> the one i'm not I was a fan gonna either. mention wasn't yeah. um wasn't Wreck quite similar to that as well? Because that's kind of like found footage, isn't it? Wreck? Yeah, a little bit. I think the original one of that was good because I think the original was a Spanish film and then they yeah. remade it as an American film. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there have been one or two that have been better than the others. I think Cloverfield was quite good. Mm. Um, but mostly I think they all become a little bit interchangeable, really, that genre. You've yeah. also got that new thing that they're doing now. Uh, I think the the big kind of uh, the trendsetter for that one was the film Searching, uh, where it's all kind of told over Zoom or video call. And I think yeah. I can't remember what is it. Someone goes missing in Searching, or uh, they're basically yeah. trying to find someone. Hence the title. Again, I haven't seen that because it just does not appeal to me at all. But that got <laughs> really good reviews. I mean, that was that was a good film. But I think I think what would happen it is um, you know people would either try and copy the formula too much and then it's not going to be half as good or they're going to try and do something a bit more elaborate and then kind of, um, you know, they're just going to lose a grip of the material. Mm. But I think, yeah, um, there's been one or two kind of straight up horrors that kind of play everything out through webcams and things. Particularly there was a lot of those filmed around COVID time. Yeah. Um, which, you know, fair enough, that's being creative and making the most of your, you know, being locked down. But there's there's so many that, that they're a little bit samey. Mm. And I feel like it should maybe run its course now that, you know, everything's open again. Yeah, 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 for sure. Um, I've just thought of one film that was hugely successful and was initially a low-budget film, The Four Monty. What's yeah. It, yeah. Was that a low-budget film when it... When it was made, I think it was, wasn't it? It wasn't made for much, I don't think. And then it did hugely well afterwards upon release, obviously. Um, I don't know, what do you guys think about the Formonti? Are you fans of that film? 
I have not seen that in years and years and years. I actually yeah. really, I, no, actually, I really saw it probably when I was a lot younger. And I've got to say, it, it, it really kind of, um, it really kind of touched me. <laughs> um, yeah, it's. I mean, that's probably going to cost. I would imagine at least two to three million. I don't know. Was Robert Carlyle a big name by that point? Because he, um, I'm trying to think if it was before or after he did that TV show. I mean, he wasn't no, huge. Oh, um, um, Hamish. Yeah, Hamish I think that might have been around about did, the time of Hamish. Yeah, and also, it literally that film literally came out. Um, just after train spotting. So I think he was kind of on the verge of his career, um, you know, the film, his film career kind of taking off. Because um, yeah. train spotting was hugely successful. Was that a low budget film as well? Oh, ah, yeah. So yeah, he would have been. I mean, train spotting was, you know, British films generally tend to be low budget anyway. So, you know, if you're comparing to Americans, because, you know, we have a smaller pool of money. But then most of the money does go into those productions. So even what we consider low budget might cost, you know, a couple of million. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, back so, then at least it was probably sort of mid range. It was an unexpected hit. It wasn't sort of, you know, as high a level as, say, four weddings. So um, it didn't have that expectation with it. So yeah, it was probably quite low budget. But then, Obviously, it was a mega hit, and then you know that set the bar for every other kind of British light-hearted sort of dramedy. After that, it was always compared to the Full Monty. Yeah, apparently, so I was checked. Apparently, it uh, cost three point five million. This is in dollars, and um, yeah. it made two hundred and fifty-eight million. I don't know if that's worldwide box office. I imagine, I imagine yeah. that it is. Yeah, probably worldwide. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah ma- massive hit. Yeah. Yeah, because Robert Carlyle was saying, um, he said on an interview on Graham Gray Norton once, um, when they had the whole cast of Chainsporting from <clears throat> Chainsporting 2 came back with Danny Boyle. And he was saying um, when they first edited it, it nearly went straight onto video. It was so bad. Um, yeah. And they basically found someone else to edit it and had to shoot a few scenes over again. Um, and then obviously it took off and it was huge, you know. Um, but you know, he thought it was a pile of poo basically when he was <laughs> when he when he was making it and when he saw it because you know without the editing and the director because I think they got a new filmmaker, um, it would have panned completely. Which just goes to show how important it is that everyone involved has just as much, um, you know. To put towards the actual project of making it, so it isn't just the cast involved; it's everyone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think they're actually are they not in the process of making a Phil Monty TV show as well? Oh, are they? Well, I know they made the West End show, and that was hugely successful. Um, Tom, yeah. I've got a question for you. Have you ever done the Phil Monty? Uh, not on stage, you know, which the British public will be very thankful of. But, you know, I'm doing the full Monty now, by the oh, way. Oh, are you? Yeah. <laughs> Dad, we can't see you. Yeah, my neighbours are laughing at me, so oh, really? that's, that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm trying to think of any other low-budget films. Can you guys think of any low-budget films that have inspired you? Um. I'm not too sure, but I mean, I oh, think Tom's like. kind of, 
Oh, no, sorry, on you go. Oh, no, no, I was saying, um, can you think of any low-budget films that you like or couldn't stand? Um... I don't know. I mean, see, to be honest, most of them, most of them, if you're talking about kind of direct to video type stuff, most of them are pretty forgettable. I mean, occasionally, like, uh, you know, uh, Calibre or whatever, you come across one of those kind of low budget gems on Netflix or whatever, you know, they tend to be blind watches or blind buys and you end up really liking them. But I think a lot of the time, um, you know, low budget films are either you kind of they fall into two categories. You get the ones that are really, really good, where you're pleasantly surprised, and the filmmakers have done a really great job. Or you get the ones that, um, you know, are kind of so bad that they're good. Um, <laughs> the other guy that's quite interesting, I think his name is Jeremy Solnier. Is that right, Tom? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he did Blue Ruin, which was this sort of uh, kind of offbeat revenge movie, uh, totally serious. The violence in it was quite harrowing. Um, and it's, I guess, the, the slight quirk there is that it is really an average Joe going out for revenge. And he's not, you know, um, he's not Jean-Claude Van Damme or he's not Charles Bronson. He is literally just the average Joe. And that kind of uh, heightens the film's appeal, I think. Uh, and then mm. the guy also did after that Green Room. Uh, which was about a bunch of neo-Nazis at some sort of uh, punk rock concert. I've only seen that one once, uh, although I think that that actually cost five million that, so I think he probably had a bit of a jump from Blue Ruin, which I'm imagining cost a million or, or under, um, to Green Room. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen that film with um, Tom and Mai's favourite guy, Steve Buscemi, um, Living in Oblivion? That's a very, That was a low-budget film, and that was hugely successful. Um, I haven't seen that. What's that about? Oh my god! Have you not seen it? You're gonna watch it, Nathan. Tommy, okay. you've seen it. I still haven't seen it. No. You two have to see it. It's all about um, basically Steve Buscemi plays his filmmaker making his first up and coming feature film, and you know, as filmmaker, um, film filmmakers, or well, I guess you're the writer, Tom, and you're the filmmaker, Nathan. It's basically everything that goes wrong for up a shoot. Um, and it's basically so true to life because the actual writer director wanted to write how it is to, you know, to make a film is actually very difficult. Um, but that wasn't made for much. Um, he was saying that um, him and his wife had to come up with so much money. And then um, one of the actors put some money towards it after her father died and a lot of the time, you know, there were, the actors weren't real actors. So, I mean, some of them were, like um, Dermot Mahoney and Catherine Kinnear, et cetera. And there were a few genuine actors. But a, a few of the crew members were just random people they knew <laughs> <laughs> that they used um, that was so funny for the actual show um, of it. So I can't believe you two have never seen it. You've got to watch it. Right, okay, I'll, I'll add that to the, the little <laughs> log. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're going to watch that and maybe we can do like a review of it or something. Okay, yeah, that's yeah, that, that and Black Christmas. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah we'll, do, we'll do a double bell. I'm looking forward to when Halloween eventually comes up because that's my favourite time because then I have a Halloween marathon. What's, what's your favourite horror film? Um, I quite like the... I'm not really into gore i kind of prefer the more um suspenseful mind ones you know ones a bit like the yeah. shining the shining is very effective it's not gory 
but it's cre- it's really creepy because it's just so scary and you have this sense of paranoia and isolation um <clears throat> and another one i really like is the thing john carpenter's thing that's a really good one for sort of yeah. this sense of paranoia i kind of like those films more that i couldn't that's handle cool. watching films like saw and stuff that would really upset me <laughs> that would really <laughs> give me nightmares <laughs> what about you guys uh, I'm the same as you. I think uh, The Shining and The Thing are probably two of my favourites as well. Yeah. So yeah. you're kind of more into those sort of um, mindful sort of horror films, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And in terms of what I like to write, those are the kind of things that I prefer writing as well. But they're more Even effective, though, yeah. I think, as well. I think they? so, yeah. I mean, the, the market tends to prefer kind of creature features and things like that, but I prefer, you know, stuff a bit more psychological. Yeah, yeah. And what about you, Nathan? Yeah, I'd agree with that as well. I mean, I think that the more psychological suspense films have got a bit of a broader appeal as well. I mean, if you look at any of the recent stuff, um, if you look at, you know, A Quiet Place or Get Out or um, anything like that, the probably the ones that have the most appeal are those suspenseful ones because they tend to generate the most hype. I mean, I know you've got sort of like franchises like Halloween and Scream that are still hugely popular and uh, they are basically, you know, people are going just for the gore. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm with you guys on the suspense front. I, um, one of my favourite films is uh, Rosemary's Baby um, and what I like about that is that you don't, there's, for 99% of the film, there's no kind of visual sense of horror. It's it's about what might happen um, and I think the sort of the, the horror or the terror comes from the fact that um you know, Rosemary is obviously experiencing this thing, uh, but, you know, she's trying to convey it to a bunch of people that don't believe her, and then ultimately they don't believe her because they're, they're you know, trying to corner. Um, but I think from an audience perspective, that's, you know, quite um, horrific because you kind of place yourself in that situation yeah, as yeah. well. Um, yeah. And sometimes I think actual people are scarier than, you know, monsters and demons. You they know, are. The two yeah. They're walking yeah. around like everyday people, and it's scary to think you know, that this really nice man that lives next door to you is actually a serial killer murderer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. there have been cases of that, haven't there? Like, you know, um, people like Jeffrey Dummer and, you know, uh, Ted Bundy, for instance. You know, he was one of the nicest, yeah. quote, people to, you know, all the people that knew him. But they had no idea he was leading this double life. Um, yeah. And that's what I think makes it so scary, you know. And there seems to be a huge appetite for that sort of true crime stuff at the moment as well. Yeah, because yeah, we've yeah. had uh, Zach Efron playing Ted Bundy and then you also... Oh, that was um... ridiculous, wasn't it? Why would you get him <laughs> to play Ted Bundy? <laughs> Did you guys see that film? No, but I saw... Nah, I nah. love the documentary. I saw the documentary when it was like really, you know, when everyone was talking about it. That was quite... You did, Tom, as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That was um, It was the same really filmmaker creepy, yeah. that made both of them he was doing both of them um, simultaneously. Um, Uh But the documentary was like just (laughs) (laughs) mind-blowing. Yeah. I also quite liked the uh, the David Tennant one where he uh, he portrayed Dennis Nelson. I thought that was quite good as well. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen that film Creep that was on Netflix? I think it's still on there. Is that that the one on the train or on the underground? Uh. I think that's the second one because they've made quite a few. I think they made um, a creep too, and that was 
yeah, there's a scene on the train on the underground. Um, I can't remember his name. Tom, do you remember his name? Tom, what's his name? What's his name? The guy that wrote it. Uh, I've never seen it. <coughs> You've never seen it? No, I, I've heard of it, but I would keep Oh, my God, you could have yeah. seen it. That's, that's a very low-budget film, um, and it was another hugely successful film. Hang on. I think it's Mark Dupree. Dupree. Oh, Mark Mark Duplass. Yeah, yeah he's done a lot it, of uh, very low budget films. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and actually that film, the first one, is you know it's only between two people. You only ever really see two actors, um, and it's hugely effective. Do you know what I mean? There's no blood or gore or anything. I mean, I won't give away, but um, there might be one scene, but. A lot of it is just this weirdo. <laughs> um, you know, it, it pretends to be a really nice guy who ends up being a complete creep, which is why it's called creep. Yeah, sounds a um, lot about like my autobiography. Oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to check his name out. I think it was Mark. Oh, Mark Dupree. That's it. That was that's his name. Um, yeah. So he's the um, writer filmmaker, and the other guy that was in the film with him was also um, a filmmaker and they kind of, you know, made up the concept together. So um, have you guys, you haven't seen it. You've got to, that's another film you have to watch then. Yeah. After that, I, we'll add that to the list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's another film we need to watch. Um, I remember seeing that um, maybe a couple of years ago, one Halloween. I thought, oh, I'm going to have a good scare. I'll watch this. <laughs> um, yeah. That's a really good low budget film as well. And it's only about maybe 50 minutes long, really. It's not, you know, your typical film-length feature, if you know what I mean, as in, like, it's over an hour or so. Um, <clears throat> I mean, have you guys got any other favourites you want to mention? Well, actually, when you mentioned Creep, it just reminded me of a film called The Descent, uh, which Ooh. i seen years and years ago, which uh, is, I think, off the top of my head, it's about uh, this... I'm pretty sure it was filmed in Scotland, actually. Um, it's about these... Um, you know, people on some kind of adventure holiday and they end up in this sort of labyrinth of caves and whatnot. But it's uh, it's pretty horrifying because it's kind of along the same lines of, uh, you know, slight fish out of water. You know, these people are trapped in a, in a place that they can't get out of and there's something uh, there's something cutting about that's a little bit creepy down there. Um, <laughs> the other yeah. thing the other thing that uh, also sprung to mind, uh, Tom, when you mentioned Evil Dead, is the original Hills Have Eyes, which I kind of, I'm not a massive fan of. I think it's sort of uh, on on the kind of the the not the wrong end of cheap i don't know what the right word is it's almost a little bit difficult to take that one seriously whereas the evil dead kind of knows it's a little bit nuts and is in on the joke whereas uh the hills of eyes i kind of feel was trying to come across serious at times but that's yeah. an example of a, a bit of a cult classic that was made for i imagine not very much money you know, yeah the- and then you had uh last house on the left as well which um wes craven did just before that yeah yeah um yeah What's the one with the trailer? Um, that I think it's the hills. Uh, what was it, Nathan? That you said that, that is the hills of eyes. Yeah. 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 What's the one of the trailer that goes? Um, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. <laughs> Just remind yourself. Oh. I think that's the hills of eyes. It could be because I was yeah. actually I was looking at um famous horror taglines the other day when I was trying to come up with a tagline for something and that was one of the taglines uh, just keep reminding yourself it's only a movie 
How did you come up with the name of your film? Oh, I don't actually know who came up with that, Tom. I can't remember who who came up with it either, no. But I think um, I think it's quite um, an effective title. So yeah, when darkness falls, we wanted to do something that would kind of intrigue people, but maybe yeah. not give yeah too much away. Yeah, I quite like it as well when um, uh, one of the characters actually says the film title in the film because it then obviously gives the impression that you've not just picked something at random, you know, like those uh, those sort of infamous two-word Steven Seagal titles that mean absolutely nothing. <laughs> um, so Beck, uh, one of the characters of this, actually says the line when darkness falls. So, uh, yeah, and I guess it's significant to the story because uh, after Andrea disappears, um, the film kind of the, the kind of the last third at least takes place at night time. So she's actually did most of her searching for Andrea uh, when darkness falls. Um, is that a film? I just kind of thought of something. Um, what's the name of that film? Is it Don't Look Now with Donald Sutherland? That- oh yeah. yeah. That is a yeah. classic. That's one of your favourites, isn't it, Tom? Oh, is that yours as well, Nathan? Is oh, that, yeah, I love that film, yeah. Was that a low-budget film? To be honest, I still haven't seen it, but I know about it a lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say probably, no, not particularly low-budget. Um, no, it wasn't massive budget because the director was fairly kind of... He wasn't huge back then. Um, no, he was a cinematographer, yeah. wasn't he? That yeah. was his first film. yeah. Um, so it, it was, you know, not a massive budget, but obviously they were filming in Venice, which would have cost quite a bit. Um, no, that was, you know, that's a really good film, though. Yeah. yeah. You took a photo of Lulu, didn't you, in a red coat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That red uh, re- coat yeah. always has a significance on the child when you see it from the back. It's just really scary. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a child, it's a dwarf with a knife. <laughs> Um, Spoiler alert! Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I think it's all right. They've had forty. They've had fifty. Sorry. I think a lot of the people know by now. It was out in the seventies, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Yeah. And there was that ongoing rumor between him and um, who was the actress who played his wife, Julie Christie. Yeah, that they were having an affair, weren't they? Yeah. Um, but well, I mean, they had another rumor on set because there's a there's an infamous um, sex scene. And yeah, one of the rumors I mean. was, it was that yeah, one. it was, uh, yeah, it was. Um, but he said, um, yeah, he, panned real, it. he but... said, no, no, no. <laughs> it was nothing romantic or sexy about making it at all. And a lot of the time, those sex scenes aren't, are they? I mean, you think about it, you know, there's the director yeah. saying, right, you put your hand there. You put your hand. <laughs> And that's <laughs> not even there. that. So he's talking to. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Hashtag me too. Apologies for that. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever um, directed um, a love scene, Nathan? Oh, only in my dreams. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, not yet. Although the the thing that we've got, um, that I've got coming up next, has got um, some uh, some carnal action in it, if you want to call it. Oh, that. Is it? So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that that will be another sort of. It's it's funny because you do those things where you you kind of tick things off the list you're oh yeah done that in a film you know died in a film you know whatever but yeah that's one of the things that I've not quite gotten to yet I haven't found any uh, I haven't found any willing uh, <laughs> participants <laughs> <thus> far <laughs> that's the advantage of being the writer and the director at the same time if you're doing both 
He's like, yeah, I'll put in a love scene. Put in a sex scene, why not? <laughs> Tom, does that sound good to you? Uh, well, not if I'm going to be in it, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I weirdly, when I've been kind of working with um, distributors and things like that, that's one thing, because I tend to work through American distributors with a lot of my films. And it's kind of gone out of fashion, really. You know, love scenes, nudity. Uh, they don't even like swearing that much anymore. Mm. Whereas this is a lot more commonplace on TV nowadays. But yeah, I think there's still a, there's still a place in you know films for it when it's you know used right and there's a point. To I was going to say when it's and and it sounds like a cliche because a lot of the directors say you know if it's if it has a part in a storytelling, then it has a place, but there's no point in putting it in there just for them. Yeah. I guess it's a bit like, you know, like you were saying, Nathan, about the horror gore. It's just like, what's the point in putting this in? You know, do you know what I mean? It becomes nothing, really. Um, but it has to be, you know, obviously to do the storytelling. So there are, you know, good examples of it, like in Terminator and, you know. Yeah. But, um, but like you said, Tom, it's very rarely seen these days. Um would that get see? Would that get done? Do you think maybe in big films? Sorry, my voice is going again. <laughs> that um, the distribution people might come along and say, "Oh well, we might get more people to come and see this if you put a sex scene in." Do you reckon that would happen, or more? That new? you that used to be a case, but now I think they go the opposite way. So they say we don't really want to put you know nudity in this because it might offend people or you know unless it's absolutely necessary yeah 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 Yeah. it's weird though because then tv has gone the opposite way before you never seen any sex scenes on tv and now you've got stuff like game of thrones and bridgerton that are literally full of them i don't really understand the rationale because (laughs) i would have thought um that you know it was safer to put something in a film um you know which is a sort of transactional purchase than on tv where you know you might flick it on and be like oh you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit odd, and even from the perspective of, you know, as Tom said, they, you know, they like as much gore as humanly possible. People getting decapitated and what have you, but you know, you can't have any f bombs or any nudity. And to me, that sort of, it depends what you're writing. I mean, like, you know, if you're doing a sort of um a low budget horror and you're trying to appeal to that gore audience, typically that audience don't care about sex scenes or swearing either. In fact, typically they like the full shebang. So really, it's because ultimately you, you've got a 15 or an 18 rating based on the gore alone. So what difference does it really make if you've, uh, you know, if you've got sex in there as well? I do get the the point on gratuitous nudity and sex for the sake of it. I mean, I think if you look at a lot of 90s movies, like, for example, Stallone's The Specialist had that sort of shower scene uh, with him and Sharon Stone on yeah. the floor of the shower. And, you know, which I've watched 420 times. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, it kind of... It doesn't necessarily fit with the genre, but no. you know, you watch it in the film, you're like, well, it's still a good scene, it's well shot. I mean, to me, it's like there isn't a reason for it necessarily, but there isn't really a reason to take it out either, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But also, yeah. me and Tom spoke about this is that in the 90s, there was a huge chain of those sort of films after Basic Instinct, weren't there? There was, yeah, so it was like, um, yeah, a thing at the time. Um, I think Basic Instinct sort of basically you know, started that whole femme fatale and, you know, that sort of erotica type phase. Um, yeah, and it, it ran off. off into, like, um, 
uh, like cable channels. So there was always like low budget equivalents, mm. um, like a channel called Cinemax that they used to call Skinemax, um, <laughs> which was in- infamous for those. But I mean, those were that those were gratuitous, but they were knowingly so because they knew that there was an audience there and they were just catering to kind of men, you know, up at one a.m. watching the TV. <laughs> and that was one of your favourite films, Tom, wasn't it? Um, I did I used to watch a few of those on Channel Five, but I was okay. fifteen. No, so. I mean Basic Instinct. <laughs> oh yeah, no Basic Instinct. But I think that <laughs> that was a notorious that, um, sketch, that notorious scene, which probably yes. was overboard. But I think the rest of the film does fit, and it's kind of that's kind of the point of it that she's kind of luring men in, um, yeah, because they're so easily swayed by a bit of. Uh, Boob. But to be honest, um, that but then it makes sense in that film though that they yeah. include that because she yeah. is very malicing and very manipulating as well. You know, she's terrifying. Yeah. And it, yeah, it's a really good film as well. Yeah, I actually, I actually remember the time it got to the specialist that um, Sharon Stone had refused to film the sex scene with Sylvester Stallone because she was sick of doing stuff like that. And was I can't she? remember. Yeah, apparently, and I can't remember Stallone said I can't remember who he said gave him the bottle of vodka but he said he took whether that is true or not I don't know he took a bottle of vodka around to Sharon Stone's trailer they had a few shots and in his words I'm roughly paraphrasing here uh, within an hour we were getting wet and wild uh, so <laughs> it's like basically what he's saying is he got her drunk and she was like yeah that's okay let's just do the scene yeah yeah but she did complain after that because obviously that was how she was typecasted didn't she just complaint yeah. that nobody took her seriously as an actress and that's basically you know yeah. she's always had a reputation of being very difficult to work with um <clears throat> so that hasn't gone in for her favor really i don't think no but i mean a lot even <laughs> a lot of the rip-offs a lot of sharon stone's kind of output during the 90s was really good um mm-hmm. i mean she was in some great films um during the 90s so total um, recall Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, d- I don't really see the problem with being typecast if you know if the films are good and if if you've managed to craft a career out of you know exactly. um, being typecast. You know, if you look at somebody like Martin Lawrence, who's you know always the the funny black sidekick, what is the problem with that? You know, if he's good at it and he's making yeah, money yeah. from it, you know, yeah, he's getting <clears throat> paid. That's that's what it is, isn't it? Really, yeah. It's a bit well. It's a bit like Will Smith. Well, I guess Will Smith is a bit more versatile. Um, but I guess when he first started out, he was kind of like the bad boy, wasn't he? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I guess now again that he's uh, that he's white Chris Rock in the Well, he's he's <laughs> probably really messed up his career now. I think. Um, yeah, people yeah. are not particularly forgiven anymore. Uh, that was such you know. a strange. That was such a strange um, moment in the Oscars. <laughs> it's the only thing people remember from the Oscars. I know. Even like the last few years, it's been going seriously downhill. Well, the thing is, um, is that you do kind of think, was that a stint? Do you know to get the ratings yeah. up? Um, people did think that, but um, yeah, no, I think it was genuine. And that seems to have overtaken the La La Land shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> we all thought that was it. That we all thought that was the top up, but no, it was Will Smith smacking Chris Rock. <laughs> it wasn't even the smack that was disappointing. It was the shouting. I think. Yeah, that was yeah. the most disturbing bit. But you know, anyway. So, any other films you want to discuss, or should we wrap it up? 
Uh, yeah, I don't know if anything else I can think of. Tom, anything you want to say or any questions you want to ask each other or anything you want to add before wrapping uh, up and plugging your film? Don't plug your film yet. Just say <laughs> Okay, <laughs> we'll plug our film in a second. But, I mean, we could talk briefly about what we've got planned for next year without yeah, giving too much it. away. Um, sure. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, yeah, myself and Nathan are kind of working on a few things. Um, going into next year um so we've got all our kind of separate things that we're doing and then we're going to be working together on kind of like a another old school kind of throwback but kind of um psychological horror in the vein of rosemary's baby and uh the omen mm. so yeah that's what's kind of going to be next up you know with us the two of us oh good are you looking forward for that? Uh, yeah, I yeah, am. Yeah. I think Nathan is as well. <laughs> yeah, no, it should be a bit of a, a bit of a departure, and I think that it will be, um, you know, something that's as tense as when Darkness Falls, but you know, uh, a little bit more in the sort of gothic um, horror genre. But yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to um, seeing how the script turns out for that one. No pressure, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> that writing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm hoping it'll be another, you know, one, you know, first draft masterpiece again. Um, Nathan, did you get to have any rap parties after shooting this one? No, and uh, actually that was partly because of COVID because there was really no point in trying to do anything like that. And actually the previous film, uh, the previous feature that I'd worked on was uh, was ready for release round about when COVID started, when we're starting pre-production on this. We didn't get to have a premiere for that either. Uh, and I did inquire, but, you know, it was like a 200-seater cinema would take 20 people just yeah. um, due to the restrictions. So I was like, oh, n- never mind. Um I mean, I think probably towards the UK release for When Darkness Falls, which I think is likely to be... Hello? Please, afterwards, if you want to put it mildly. Oh, Nathan, (laughs) can you say that again? Sorry, you cut off. Can you, sorry, can you repeat what you just said? It was my internet connection just went unstable. Sorry. All right, okay. Uh, yeah, no, I think probably for uh, once when Darkness Falls is sold in the UK and released released here, which I think is probably going to be kind of early next year, um, we'll likely have some sort of a UK screening slash rap party um, and we'll get absolutely legless. <laughs> Tom, are you involved? Uh, yeah, I, I should be there. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, someone's got to keep Nathan under control. Exactly. <laughs> Oh, quick question. What's the name of that film with Roman Polanski and he was in it? Is it The Tenant? Was that a low-budget film? That was a Um, very good film at the time when it came out. Obviously, he's got a reputation, you know. I mean, it probably wasn't massive budget. I mean, he tended to do things as kind of independently as he could, even Mm. when he was working with a studio. So, yeah, I think that would have been, you know, fairly low budget in comparison to what was being released at the time yeah i think he did another one with Catherine Deneuve. what was that one Repul- repulsion uh, repulsion yeah that's a really good film that's that the kind really of um yeah horror that i really like was that him was that his film it was yeah it was yeah. wasn't it and that's was one of his that. earlier ones yeah 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 For sure i'm gonna start watching more low budget films but it's just quite hard to sort of come across them you have to sort of go looking in the right places, I think. There's not yeah. many. 
you know, especially the old ones, old school ones, but for sure. All right then, guys. So should we start wrapping it up? Um, anything you want to say, Nathan? Um, not, I guess, other than uh, obviously when Darkness Falls is not out in the UK yet, but if you happen to be in the States, uh, it's now out on DVD and digital. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. And then later on in the year, it should be on a few other platforms as well. Um, and yeah, go check out the trailer and the exclusive clips online. And uh, if you're into kind of old fashioned, old school mystery thrillers, then it's probably for you. Awesome. Um, what about you, Tom? Anything you want to say? Uh, no, I second that. So, yeah, if everyone goes, runs off, anyone in America, that is, can run off and go and watch When Darkness Falls and, you know, give give a few nice reviews, rate it on IMDb, um, be generous, uh, and Nathan will give you a few quid. <laughs> and a drink. Buy you drink. Yeah. And a drink, yeah. <laughs> All right, then, guys. Thank you for joining me today. No problem. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank- yeah, thank and, uh, you. feel free to come back anytime. Cheers. Yeah, that'd be good. That would be Sorry good. We should do a well. horror movie marathon next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. sure. And sorry about my voice. <laughs> That's, That's all right. Get yourself some lemon sip. I will. I will. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Cool. Bye-bye. Bye. See you Bye. later, everyone. See ya.